Howdy, folks. This is Scott Parker, and you're listening to another episode of uh, Keep the Dream Flowing, the uh, Woodstock 1969 podcast. And we're continuing uh, something that we started a few episodes back. It's kind of a deep dive into the band The Quarry, who played the, well, basically, they commandeered the free stage at Woodstock. And um, uh, a gentleman who was not at Woodstock, but um, is uh, rather acquainted with um, our previous guest, who was Mick Valenti from the quarry, his brother Dan is on with us right now. So it's our great honor to uh, continue to learn more about the history of the quarry with none other than Dan Valenti, ladies and gentlemen. Well, th- th- thanks, fellas. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity. And every our pleasure. I, I get to talk about the greatest not so unkept anymore due to efforts such as uh, your podcast and and uh, some documentary movies that were released with the 50th anniversary and so on. But still the best uh, kept secret of Woodstock was, as you say, the quarry, which essentially served as the house band. Yep. And I'll, I'll never forget something that Artie Lang told me this was years ago, and I don't believe he's still with us, is he? Are you is talking he, uh, about Ken- Michael Lang or, oh, Artie Michael Kornfe- Lang or Artie Kornfeld or Artie Lang, the comedian? <laughs> <laughs> who was the one who recently passed away? Michael That's Lang. Michael. Mm-hmm. He was one okay, of the producers. Michael Lang. Michael yeah. Lang told me, he said uh, that it might be a bit of a stress, but he wasn't sure to say that if the quarry had not been at Woodstock, it would not have happened the way it did. And here's the reason why. The band was playing in New York City. Yep. I think at a place called the Electric Circus. Right. Yes. And they were seen by the scouts at Woodstock who were trying to sign talent for the festival and they had uh, the in- inclination that it was going to be a heavy draw, nothing like it turned out to be. And they came up with the idea of having a band on hand for the setup all during the performance from the main stage mm-hmm. and after the setup, which I thought was pretty forward thinking, you know, if you think about it, at the time. Absolutely. And so anyways, the talent scout heard the quarry and basically told, I think it was Michael Lang that signed these guys. These guys, these are the ba- guys of the band you want. So they showed up as the scaffolding went up and the stage went up and they kept all of those people kind of entertained. And then yes. when the crowds started to show up, one of the serious problems that could have put an end to the event before it got started was the question of security. Right. Mm -hmm. And I heard from someone who worked in governor Rockefeller's office. I think Rocky was the governor at the time. Yes, he was. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, later on, I worked for a daily newspaper in uh, Syracuse, New York, the post standard and our right. state house guy was a state house legend a reporter by the name of gus bliven and gus knew all, where all the bodies were buried knew everybody and i was talking one day this would probably be around 1977 or so less than 10 days after woodstock and he said uh, and i had mentioned i forgot that uh, oh my brother uh, played at woodstock and He said that, well, I don't know if you know this, but Governor Rockefeller was actually on the phone with the promoters and trying to be talked out of canceling the festival. Yes. Apparently, and I don't know who it was, but from uh, whether it was from the town of Bethel or someone had called the governor's office and was saying, we've got a serious security problem here. Yeah. So they have the free stage set up. And thus, it 
it became, as you, one of you put it, uh, the Corey commandeered the free stage. Yes. And they started playing music before Taj Mahal went on, who was, I think, the first act, correct? Taj, so Taj, Taj, Taj Mahal was not at Woodstock. Richie Havens was the first oh, yeah. act that, uh, actually, that actually played. Yeah. Uh, I meant to say Woody, uh, Richie Havens. And oh, sure. So the, the spill of the crowd actually filling that uh it was basically on as my brother described it the main stage was at one location and then the the slope going up and somewhere on the other downside of the slope was the free stage yep yeah okay and he said that uh once the festival was at its peak both sides were about equally as full that sounds about right and so to keep the numbers of people entertained, this is before Richie Havens goes on. The band has been playing now for a couple of days, you know, when they were setting everything up. And yeah, it, it sort of got the crowd into that mood that we see in the films and in people who have been there. That mood of, this is two summers after the Summer of Love, but it, mm-hmm. it was the, the, the last uh, the last flare-up of that flame, you know, because after that we had Altamont and things got dark and things went south in a hurry. So I think well, the, uh, the weekend, the weekend before Woodstock, you had the Manson murders. Yes. Oh, that's right. Out in L.A. Uh, great point. And uh, anyways, getting back to the original question, Michael Lang said, you know, I, I really wonder if the quarry had not been there we would have been able to pull this off and we, we, uh, they were able to get back to the governor though. Everything's under control, which it wasn't really. Yeah. They didn't know, but uh, the quarry played a key part. And I guess you'd say kind of, uh, ironically in security and crowd management, they kept a lot of people entertained yep. for the entertainment. And so it, points to the fact that band really did play a key role in, again, as we said earlier, the seminal music event of our times, which will never happen again, by the way. Don't think it could. quite the same way. There might be some concert that will draw more people, but it will never happen that way. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely absolutely not. not. Well, because people know what they're doing now. (laughs) <laughs> right well, and that's why they screw it up yeah exactly <laughs> but it, but it was they know what they're doing and they don't go in with that sense of we can get this done it, yeah. anything is possible and you know there's a to be in the music business you have to have a lot of practicality and pragmatism and good business sense and all of that the Woodstock promoters had a little bit of that, but certainly not enough to have been able to pull off what they did. Sure. Had they known better, you know, had they known better, they never would have done this in the first place. Well, they did, they, they did pull it off, but a lot of what happened at Woodstock was a series of happy accidents. Mm -hmm. Yes. And happy Happy accidents happen for a reason, though. Yep. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was very. It was. It was. It was definitely one of the one of the nineteen sixty nine miracles in New York State, including the New York Mets, the New York Jets, the New yeah. York Knicks. Yeah, <laughs> right yeah, state that, for that, it. <laughs> it all. It all came together really that year, and you know, it, it's funny because uh, the official film. There are snippets of the quarry. I think my brother said maybe a, a minute worth of band time. I don't know. Certainly there's little the, bits. Yes. Yeah, there's a little bit. Do I actually that, found, yeah. I don't mean to cut you off there, but I actually found yeah. a little bit more footage of them. And uh, okay. I can send that over to you. I've been posting it on Facebook occasionally. I would I would love to, to, to see that. I do know that Warner Brothers, which eventually released the official film, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Of course, as you guys probably know in filmmaking, yeah. you shoot way more footage than you actually use. Oh, yeah. And 
there there is at least I was told they're not sure, but there is anywhere from an hour up to two hours of film on the quarry and the Warner Brothers can film cans in storage. A few years ago, there were inquiries made by uh, a friend of of the band at Warner Brothers try to release the footage, have access to it, at least see it. And they were holding tight without really supplying a reason. Mm. I always thought if you, if you took that footage and edited that as a story, it would make a remarkable film. Absolutely. So the, yeah, I remember I was asking my brother when I got back, you know, he was saying, Dan, you, you just won't believe this. And yeah. he would give me all of his firsthand accounts and experiences. And uh, among that was the fact that the, the the a camera crew i think it was a sound guy and, and a, one or two camera guys at least a sound guy and one camera uh were with them filming a lot of stuff and yeah. of course that stuff's never been seen you know the only thing i can think of is and and i doubt this because i don't think film executives are this smart that they would be sitting on this to release. I thought maybe at one point for the 50th, they would take some of the footage they have, not just of the quarry, but of other activity on the cutting room floor and, you know, coming out with uh, the outtakes of Woodstock, basically something like they did with the Beatles with Get Back, Disney Channel. You know, I thought that might happen with the 50th, but it never did. They they released an extended director's cut for the 40th. And what they had like two another two hours to the movie mm-hmm. with outtakes and all that. And for yeah. the 50 and for the 50th, they released the audio, all the audio from the, from, main, stage. From the main stage. They have not okay. released anything from the free stage. I don't know that they recorded it with the same fervor or accuracy because it was a free stage. It was throwaway music according to the festival organizers. And there was some great stuff in addition to the quarry playing there. I mean, Jerry Mm -hmm. Garcia was there, John Baez, Mm -hmm. other members of the Grateful Dead. And it was just phenomenal. That's where my brother met um, Garcia. Correct. The two bands got tight. I don't know if he got into this with you guys, but he did. He yeah. did. He oh, okay. he told he told. I don't. Well, obviously, you haven't listened to the episode, but we we've had, we spoke to him, and he told us pretty much the cradle to the grave story of Quarry and beyond. Because we heard quick this quick fox story too, and mm-hmm. we also had Wendy Darling, who also spoke yep. about. The quarry. Dave Karen's uh, wife at the time. Dave was correct. Uh, yes. Yeah. Dave was the lead guitarist and and a vocalist with my brother in the band. Right. Oh, that's right. So he's the one um, in that in the clip that I one of the clips that I was talking about, uh, Dan. There's um, uh, he's on stage playing, and there's a cameraman from the from the Wadley crew, so the official film crew, right in his face as he's playing. So there's definitely footage okay. of that somewhere. Yeah. Yes. And and uh, Wendy was the person who made the inquiries at Warner Brothers. And as I said, it went nowhere. But that footage exists. I, you know, just to give you the Reader's Digest version of the quarry and the Grateful Dead, the quarry flew from Woodstock, I think, directly to the Texas International Pop Festival. I believe that's true. Yeah, that's what makes sense. Yeah. Uh, where they did they did the free stage there. In fact, the Texas people were at Woodstock uh, just trying to get best practices. What are these guys doing well that we want to replicate down there? What mistakes can we avoid that they're making up here? And one of the ideas they took with them was to replicate the free stage at Texas, which they did. And that was a a pretty big one too. Led Zeppelin, Santana, and and uh, bands like that. Yeah. And my brother said that uh, on Sunday, the last day, the the quarry did 
get a chance to play the main stage and and I believe the crowd wouldn't let him get off. Yeah. So from from Texas, they then went out to San Francisco where they ended up hanging out with the dead. And uh, I, I guess uh, the, the quarry, the Grateful Dead, and the new writers of the Purple Sage kind of shared uh, rehearsal space and, and hangout space, that kind of thing. And they stayed out in San Francisco for several months uh, playing out there. The band came back to the Northeast and went on a, a tour of uh, small theaters throughout New England. And then they left for Venezuela to open a club in Caracas called the Cerebrum. They, right. they, they did two months there, and the, the next act that came in, I don't know if you said this, was Jethro Tull. So, you know, that, that's, uh, that was kind of the level that the band got to and uh, then when they came back from the States, uh, musical differences and this and that led one thing to another, to my brother wanting to front a band, yep. get out from behind the drums, because he was basically writing most of the music and, and with Dave Karen doing most of the vocals. And he wanted to be a front man and basically have a vehicle for his guitar. And if you ever saw my brother play on stage, uh, back then or, or even now he's a showman he realizes what entertainment is it's yes show business. Oh, yes you know you, you you arrive at the gig and you put on a show i've seen him work uh playing in clubs that uh just had almost no one in there and you couldn't tell by his performance he was just a professional that still is about that takes it seriously right yeah yeah we love what yeah, we like Mick a lot. He's, Mick's been very yeah, good to fun. us, and yeah. we we he's been very good to us, and I think we've been very good to him. And we've been highlighting oh, that's, that's great. Mu you know, yeah. by going into the quarry, we're highlighting his yeah. music, and we're definitely bringing the quarry and, for that matter, Quick Fox to a wider audience. Yep, uh, that's terrific. And you know, my brother, after he did your show couldn't say enough about the job that you guys did. And I do think it's an important part of musical history. Oh yeah. Fill in these blanks here. You know, we're, we're the, the guys that are doing it. And I love the fact that in effect, what you're doing is conducting primary research. You're, you're yeah. dealing with some of the people who are actually there and making this happen instead of, you know, who knows how many years from now, but, we all won't be around, and at least this True. part of it is preserved. True, but it's still like a game of telephone. And, you know, if you've ever gone to a party with like a dozen friends the next morning, each of you is relaying stories from the party, and none of you think you were at the same event. You know, we said uh, before we got going that I did a talk show 14 years Right. And, uh, it was a drive time morning uh, talk and we have guests and also just have open lines where you take phone calls and we dealt with all sorts of topics. It was kind of anything under the sun and a lot of it had to do with politics from international all the way down to last night's city council meeting. And was this in Syracuse? You guys can understand if, huh? if you want to get uh, a a topic that will bring out the fact that you just mentioned ten people, same event, and ten different accounts of the event. This would happen to me constantly, where people who did not hear the show would talk to people who heard the show, who learned about the show from their friends, and so on. And it would get back to me, Dan, how could you possibly have said that about so-and-so? <laughs> and I'd say, well, what did I say? Yeah. And they would, exactly. yeah. And they'd tell me a story and I'd say, well, I'll tell you what, never said that. And that's just <laughs> one of the, yeah, you have to be able to suck it up and, and get a hard bark on you to be out in the public that way. And I guess to an extent to be in a traveling band, 
and to be on the road and, and deal with the music business, you also have to have that hard bark, as we call it, the bark <laughs> on a tree. Yep. You, you can't you can't be sensitive to any and every little thing that doesn't go your way. And if if it doesn't go your way, what do you do? Do you, do you give up or do you brush yourself off and say, yeah, well, I, yeah part of that was my fault. What can I learn from it? And you just mm-hmm. move on to the next gig and you, and you try to improve. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's just life in general. But these days yep. when every person who's on social media becomes an instant yep. celebrity and is <laughs> yeah. open to the public scrutiny, you, you just got to go with it. And the irony is that the more that happens, the more sensitive people are to simple things such as words. You know, sticks and stones. Well, sticks and stones no longer break bones because no one's or few people are in physical proximity. Yeah. Social media gives you that. Yeah. That, you have that anonymity now on social media and all of a sudden everybody's brave. Everybody says what they want to say, except if it's something you don't want to hear. Now you're offended mm-hmm. and you either need, you're a snowflake in need of a safe room <laughs> yeah, because someone said something that you don't agree with. And that's just not the way, the way it was drawn up fellas uh, in democracy. It was supposed to be, you allow a a multiple a marketplace that will be able to handle multiple points of view, and you know the idea was that common sense would basically reject the bad ideas and accept the good ones. But I think social media has upset all of that, and now the more frivolous, the more idiotic, the more self self absorbing that the notion is, the more it glorifies you. The, the less that opens the door to other people and you see it in all phases of life. Now you just, uh, I agree with everything you say and you're right to say it as long as it agrees with what I say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's just not right. <laughs> well, but, uh, but also in today's day and age, it's all about trying to, there are so many outlets for entertainment and out, yeah. you know, and now it's for so there's so many things competing for your attention. It's just yep. trying to grab your attention. And yep. the carnival barker with the weirdest and wildest thing yeah. is, is what gets everybody's attention. Wow, do you believe yeah. this person said that? Yeah. Or yeah. they did that. And it's, you know, P.T. Barnum's wet dream gone wild. Yeah. That's the truth. You know, yeah. P.T. Yeah, P- P- Barnum. Uh, uh, certainly had great insights into people. He set up his museum and it was so popular that people were staying and clogging the aisles and not moving out. So he could get all of the people lined up ready to pay their 50 cents or whatever it was to get in the door. And he, he came up with this great idea of having a wild circus type sign that said, this way to the egress, the egress meaning exit. Yep. And right. folks would, and it would say free. They'd go through the egress and just realize they'd walked out of the building and to get back in, they had to pay another admission. So, you know, but social media, you're right. Uh, it, we're, we're now locked in this eternal game with most of the popular media of can you top this yeah and exactly. just when you and just when you think we've hit the bottom or <laughs> finally now drinking the dregs it's like can like how could you stop how could you top honey boo boo well <laughs> let's come up with let's come up with 90 day fiance <laughs> you know? there you go <laughs> well, let's get let's get back or, to uh, thinking <laughs> Love after lockup. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or I'll, I will interject this because this is the thing that has my wife really annoyed right now. They're doing a reality version of the love boat in the fall. And so, oh, you good know, heavens. yeah. What yeah. could go wrong? 
<laughs> what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Oh, yeah. You know, like you're, not, hey, I, every cruise ship romance, you know, two weeks later, you're on the divorce boat. Rock and roll music is really neat. It makes you want to get up, stomp your feet, clap your hands, and scream and shout. You know, rock and roll just knocks me out here. Rocking all around the world. 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 Come on, boys, have you heard? Come on, girls, did you get the word that they're rocking all around the world? Well, old folks don't know, they can't understand the words and the music of a rock and roll band. But the kids in the school, hippies on the street, are doing their thing to a rock and roll beat. Hey, rocking all around the world, ah, oh, rocking all around the world, ah, oh, rocking all around the world, ah, oh, rocking all around the world. Oh, come on, boys, have you heard? Oh, come on, girls, if you get the word, they're rocking all around the world. Some people think country music is fine Psychedelic music will blow your mind The blues has got soul and so does jazz But nothing got to something that rock and roll has eh? Rocking all around the world Oh, 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 Come on, boys, have you heard? Oh, come on, girls, if you get the word That they're rocking all around the world now You know, yeah. you know, well, now I'll that before you. I forget, I should um, run these by run these by Mick, because there are actually two pieces of audio that I know of to exist from the uh, free stage. And they're just fragments. One is a woman singing Eleanor Rigby, who doesn't we originally thought maybe it's Joan Baez. It's definitely not. Doesn't really sound that much like her. And the second, there's a guy and I can't tell if it's a band in the background but singing something about I'm your dream, but there's rain falling. So I'm not sure that it's the quarry, but I would uh, I'd be intrigued to see if he would know anything about that at all. Yeah. You know, the other thing I've thought of is with so many people there at the time, and certainly there were a, a bunch of movie cameras, a whole lot of cameras and folks must have taken snapshots and sure. footage. And all sorts of things that have never been seen, except, you know, they're stuck away in someone's private album. I often wondered about that. Uh, what else is out there? And I'm sure there is a lot of material that still has not come to light. Maybe never will, but it's, it's an interesting thought. It's almost like, uh, you know, what other footage of the Kennedy assassination is there that we yeah. haven't seen? It's something like that. Yeah, that's, you know, like for years, the um, the free stage was one of the great mysteries, you know, and uh, it's yeah. kind of funny because um, and Jack and I have discussed this. We've just talked about this on the show before, but um, sitting right next set up right next to the quarry was uh, a guy named Angus McLeese, who was the original drummer for Lou Reed's Velvet Underground. And he right. had oh, okay. a big percussion set up. I think it was called like the. Um, God, I can't remember what he called it. Something like the Planet Earth Orchestra or something like that. And when yeah. the quarry would take a break, he would go and play. And he's he's sort of a yeah. mysterious figure on his own. So it's just really interesting uh, what happened over there. Yeah. I got a quick uh, Mick Valenti, Lou Reed story, if you want to hear it. Oh, yes, Always. I do. <laughs> Absolutely. This would be Mick is in Quick Fox now and has got it going. Quick Fox debuted in an outdoor concert. It was almost like a, a mini Woodstock in the center of Pittsfield in Massachusetts. And in the center back then, and still is, although it's been redone and changed, a large field, like a mini version of the Boston Common. Yeah, sure. And it, it was uh, the, the Pittsfield Common. And their debut 
as a power trio, Nick uh, writing all the music on guitar and vocals. The bass player was Paul Fontana. The drummer was Mark Robertson. And I got a couple of great pictures from that event. Really? But, and so when the, uh, they played on, on the stage, uh, in, if you picture this large rectangular field, if you will, they were on one of the ends of the rectangle and going out the long way is the open space and that's full of people. And it was the first time that anybody had seen, this is May of 1971. And it was the first time that uh, the Pittsfield band scene and rock scene had witnessed a true Marshall stack. <laughs> Nick was Nick was playing out of a Marshall stack. Paul Fontana bass was playing out of a stack, and there they were hearing the music, you know, some crazy distance away, and it was the first time that the power of that sort of sound amplification had been heard. And I remember for days after uh, the the kids were talking about it and uh, and all of that. But the, the Lou Reed story goes, and this is the Quick Fox era, which basically went on and off, mostly on from 1970 when they started to rehearse Mark Robertson's basement. They rehearsed, they rehearsed, they rehearsed for months and came out and that debut concert, uh, it just, tight as you could ever want a band to be quick fox went on and and some version until the early 2000s really and along the way i'm gonna i'm not sure of the exact date i could actually find out but it was the day that lou reed uh played tanglewood you guys familiar with tanglewood oh absolutely yep very much so tanglewood is located in nearby western mass yeah yep it's about it's actually about five or six miles from from Pittsfield, uh-huh. maybe a little more, depending on which way you get there. But it's it's close by. Anyways, Lou Reed was playing Tanglewood, and his equipment didn't show up. His equipment, the uh, the drums got there, and and whatever else, and for for some reason, Lou's stuff was sent ahead or after their previous gig on its own. I don't know why, but anyways, he shows up and he doesn't have, uh, he doesn't have an amp. He doesn't have anything. Wow. Except, uh, I guess he carried a guitar with him and he was, uh, he pulled the promoter and the organizers and word got out. Anyways, the punchline is that Lou Reed ended up playing out a mix, uh, stack. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Yeah. And his, his, uh, pedals and, and whatever else, Wow, uh, he needed, and and kind of saved the day of that gig. Kind of funny. I have a, a Lou Reed connection only in that I did my graduate work at Syracuse University and was in Where town for a while as a newspaper guy. And of course, Lou uh, is an SU grad as well. Yes, right. Joe Biden right. is, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that oh, that's you. right. Yep. But but yeah. our former get one of our former guests, Lenny Binder who is a resident of the town of Bethel, graduated in 64 as well. Okay. Yep, from same Syracuse? From yes. Syracuse. From Syracuse. Oh, so okay. her, her and Lou Reed are in the same yearbook. Oh. Weirdly right. enough. Oh, by the way, just, yeah. just FYI, that concert was September 1st, 1973 at Tanglewood. Oh, good job of instant research there. Sure. Uh, so that was... uh, uh, and for the... Few listeners at SU, Marvin Druger was still teaching biology even back then. Wow. What you learn on this podcast. <laughs> that was good. I'm going to walk away from this a much different person. I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's what and, we and were sure afraid of. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be for the better. Well, I, so. I was, I was going to say thank you for not saying better person, just saying different. <laughs> no, well, that's uh, a kind of our, our thing is like, who needs acid when there's keep the dream flowing, you know? Yeah. 
<laughs> well, that's true. Uh, it's sort of the version of what they would say back then. Well, uh, I don't need drugs. Uh, I'm getting high on life. Yes. <laughs> and and I, I guess that's what we're doing here as we mosey our way along. Looking back on Mick Valenti, uh, a guy I was privileged have and to still have is is my big brother yeah it's amazing how over all of these years if you really want to go back his first set of performances was was probably in 1961 wow when he when he was he was probably about 12 13 years old and he formed an acapella group with a couple of guys. I still remember really? who they were. Jimmy Lavardi and Mike Mendonza. Oh, wow. And they did a doo-wop act that they oh. took into one of the places they did this was the Hollywood Grill in Pittsfield. And the guy would pay them with free eats. Yes. They would also work the counter the downtown Newberries for tips. <laughs> yes. Yeah. For tips, free uh, soda and donuts. And then you could tell right away. I asked my parents this later, and we were both blessed to have both mom and dad around uh, until their mid 90s. They were both about to hit 96 and in good health all the way up to the end. And oh, I asked my mom Great. once. Was it surprising to you that we ended up the way we did? Our eldest brother, Pete, six years older than me, ended up joining a police force and becoming a detective until he retired. Mm. Nick got into music, as you guys know, and I got into words, writing them, speaking them, teaching them. And I said, did it surprise you? And that was, uh, she, she wasn't surprised so much. And, and the, the one who surprised her the least was my brother. Because I recall he would, my dad would play records. We had all sorts of stuff. And, and you know, it's something I've observed listening to people like the Beatles and Eric Clapton and Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. All of them seem to have had parents who had a variety of music in the house. And my dad would have things from big band and Glenn Miller, uh, Artie Shaw yeah. to Charlie Parker and some jazz. He had a guitarist that he loved, Billy Muir, M-U-R-E. And if, if you're interested, you can hear a little bit of his music uh, on the net. Arthur Guitar Boogie Smith, Ella Fitzgerald, the vocalist. We had a lot of Nat King Cole, who at the time was living in the Berkshires, by the way. And so he was wow. exposed to, when my dad would put on a record, Mick was the one who was captivated. And I could see this going, uh, growing up and spending time with him, that m music was definitely his call. And he was one of those lucky chaps, as I was, to manage to find a way to make a living at something where you don't feel like you're working, even yes. though you're working your butt off. <laughs> well, that's why they call it play music and not uh, work music. 
Yeah, but you never heard them say play writing. I'll tell you. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's true. like the priesthood. You better really be called. Uh, Paul from <laughs> God Himself to <laughs> sit down and and do what I do. And if you are, there's nothing better at it in the world. I I did the newspaper gig for five years, and I had hit. I was 28, and I said in the back of my mind. I've always wanted to go for this. So, okay, I'm quitting my newspaper job. People were saying I was a fool to give up a city paycheck. And I said, I'm going to hang out my shingle and try to write. And my goal was to exchange words for dollar bills, really. Yeah. I, I, you know, in, in Russia and the old Soviet Union under Stalin and later under Nikita Khrushchev, there were oppressive years, artists, musicians uh, such as Dmitry Shostakovich and uh, Igor Stravinsky, the, mm-hmm. the, the two greatest classical musical talents, I think, of the 20th century. You know, we'll yes. get a lot of debate on that. But basically, they, they had an expression that said you would write for the drawer. That is to yeah. say, they would compose music that they knew would never be allowed to be published or performed in in a public way. So you wrote for the drawer. And, you know, when you're deciding to try to make a go as a writer for your living, you don't write for the drawer if you want to make a living at it. Yes. And I had no idea how it would turn out. It turned out well for me. And sometimes I'll get this after a, a speaking engagement or whatever. And people say, you know, how, uh, what was the plan? You know, as if I had some plan in mind and the plan actually was to just follow your dream and to do a gut check of what you really wanted to do. And, you know, I figured that I was young enough where if I fell on my face, you're always going to be able to dig ditches. You're always going to be able to ask them how much butter they want for their popcorn. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want the jumbo order or the regular order? You'd always be able to do something. Yep. And, you know, I used to advise my students. I was, I was never a full-time teacher, but I, I taught for about 30 years, uh, a couple of colleges and as an adjunct in English departments. And I would Hmm. uh, tell my students who somehow got the notion, especially in recent years, I did my last class in uh, the summer of 2018. So it was that uh, four years ago. Yeah. And I noticed as, as the years went on, the incoming freshmen and sophomore, the, the newer ones especially, but even some of the third and fourth year students would somehow come in with the expectation that they had to have all of their career planned and figured out yes i i couldn't understand that until i started to talk with enough students and realized it was adults that were pressuring them you've got to become a business major yes you've got to become an engineer you've got to go to law school you've got to go to medical school i can think of a case right off off the top of my head this was a young girl who loved to figure skate, got very good at it, started to compete and win in the nationals and was driven by her mother, her her mother especially, but the father as well, was determined to have a doctor in the family. Yeah. And you can already tell me the outcome of this. The girl didn't want it. She went to school, uh, was enrolled as a pre-med, ended up... uh, losing her interest and in her true passion, which was skating, which as she told me was her way to just get away from everything, just get out on that ice mm-hmm. and, and dance. He gave that up, ended up quitting school and it did not have a happy ending. And I would advise my students, don't think you have to have this all figured out. You know, college is not for everybody. Yeah. If you're, if you learn how to be a plumber, or a truck driver, or an electrician, you're going to make out very well in today's economy. So or you can, or you can work in a quarry. 
<laughs> you can work in a quarry and uh, hit hit uh, the music business big time. There you go. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, my dad, as a young man, he grew up on a farm in Lee, Massachusetts, L-E-E. Yep. And he also had a job in a local limestone. You ready for this? A limestone quarry. <laughs> there you go. And the, and the, there was and limestone. The there, there were there was limestone and marble. In fact, much of the marble that was used to build uh, many of the Capitol buildings in Washington D.C. came from Lee Mass. But my dad worked <laughs> in the quarry in wow. Lee, Massachusetts, and uh, of course, uh, that's how they. That's one of the ways they got the name. Uh, it was always uh, kind of like an inside joke with my brother and myself that uh, they, <laughs> it was called the quarry. And that was our little kind of inside code, so to speak, that brought us back to our childhood.
did you know Barry Hollister, the manager of the quarry? Did you know? I did know Barry. Yes, I did. I, I remember he, the day that Barry came to our house. Yeah. Nick was 19 and he had just turned 19. No, wait, he was, uh, he, he was 19 and about to turn 20. Yeah. And in Massachusetts at the time, you needed someone who was 20. If you could sign your own contract, if you were 21 hmm. and he was, uh, not 21. He had just turned 20 and Barry Hollister came to our house uh, with the contract that my parents had to sign. I remember all of them sitting down at the kitchen table and he had signed, he wanted to sign a quarry to a five-year personal services contract. And yeah. my mom and dad sat down with him and, and went through it and it looked pretty good. And, and he signed and, um, and that was that they had previously had a manager out of Hartford hmm. by the name of John Jane, J-Y-N-E-E. Hmm. Wow. And uh, the, he was the guy who brought them down to Hartford, Connecticut in 1967, 68. They stayed, hmm. the band was staying at uh, a downtown hotel called the Hotel Americana. Hmm crossing the state house in Hartford. And <laughs> that's how they got playing and known in the uh, New York city market. And uh, so after, after Jane uh, left, they were looking for a manager and, and Barry uh, signed them. So I did know Barry uh, fairly well. Yeah. And he died what, like last year, approximately a year yeah. ago or uh, less than a year ago. Yeah. Not long ago, and uh, of course that was, you know, a a, a loss for his family. And uh, you know, you see that just one more connection with the quarry. Uh, of course, Dave Karen has now passed away. The bass player right. in the quarry, Danny Valika, is yeah. passed. And my brother and uh, Mike Fury are the last two remaining members. Mike is no longer. Yeah. Mike Fury is no longer in business. Yeah, uh, the music business, and Mick is still going. And you know what? Mick will go until until the day he literally cannot go. Mm. Yeah, that's just that's kind of awesome. That's, yeah, and Mike, that's, Mike, yeah. it's not yeah, Mike, what he is and what he does; it's who he is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Mike Fury's going to be on our show at some point. Oh, terrific! I would love to hear that. Yeah. Hey. I have not seen Mike in, in a long, long time. I would love to hear his reminiscences. You know, I, I was thinking about my brother's career, and and maybe someday I will get to this, but just writing up that story in as much yeah. detail as I can get, the, the story not just being Woodstock, but just how he got into music and what he learned about that business and a, a big part of the book would definitely be Woodstock. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I would recommend listening to the past episodes that he was on. It's a good two hours of uh, him telling his story and we got a pretty good chunk of a story in the two hours. Yeah. Oh, oh, nice. Uh, I'd, I'd never thought of that. You know, it's like a built-in interview. Uh, and of course I, would need your guys' uh, permission to to access the material. Uh, you think I could get it? It's on. Oh, yeah. Sure, sure. It's on Spotify. Yeah, and pretty oh. much wherever else podcasts are available. It's keep the dream flowing, and it's after we change servers. But we're on. You can listen to it on Audible. You can listen to it. On Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and like I said, on Spotify. Um, yeah. But pretty much most, it's on Podbean. It's on most of the major podcasts now. Oh, that, that's terrific. And, you know, of course, the 50th brought out a lot of interest in, in Woodstock. That, As you guys yeah. know far better than I do, the interest has never gone away. 
But as hmm. we move further and further away, now 50, what, two years? 53 almost. 53 now. 50, 53 years. Each year, it takes on a more mythic and legendary aspect. Right. And we said this at the top of the show, what you're doing on Keep the Dream Alive is keeping the dream literally alive. <laughs> and the, the 50th was kind of like a, a peak of all that. You know, he did numerous interviews and all of that stuff. And and that's fine. But what do you do when when the 50th goes away? Well, you do things like you guys are doing. And yeah. still exploring the facets. Everybody knows. It's like the Mississippi River. You know, everybody knows the main trunk. But there are these branches and tributaries. Or the Amazon still has, and Brazil still has, portions that are have not been fully explored and and you know that's sort of what you guys did with the, the quarry and my brother Mick Valenti is kind of taking the canoe down to, to these new areas and and bringing the knowledge of them back with you to the rest of the world kind of uh, uh, before we went on I was thinking about that and I had come up with the analogy of uh, archaeology you know you're you're uh, going back and really trying to discover more of the truth of what actually did take place. Yeah. As a man of words, we appreciate our sycophants. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> never, never, never lose appreciation for anything like that. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Watch yourself up here. Thank you, man. And that's our show. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast was produced and edited by Scott Parker. Your hosts were Jack Lekensky, Johnny Hudson, Aaron Shear, Jim Shelley, and Scott Parker. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast is not associated in any way with Woodstock Ventures or any of its entities. Come and check us out on our Facebook page. The group is called Keep the Dream Flowing where we keep you updated on various things that we're doing and give you a heads up when there's a new episode coming. So check that out. On behalf of all of us here at Keep the Dream Flowing, this is Scott Parker saying thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.